Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. It's book club day. So we had the author of today's Double Down book club selection, Every Man and Menace, the author Patrick Hoffman called in and talked to us. Before that, Andy and I talked a little bit about the possible merger between Fox and Comcast, what that means to the also possible merger between Disney and Fox, and just the the merger wars happening and what that means for uh, viewers, what that means for the audience and what it means for consumers of pop culture. It was a really interesting conversation. I just wanted to let you guys know it is obviously World Cup season. So there's tons of stuff going on on Ringer FC. So subscribe to that podcast. We're going every weekday with short podcasts that recap the day's action in the World Cup and talk about the next day's action to come. There's some great pieces on the site, including Ryan O'Hanlon's look at Lionel Messi and his history in the World Cup with Argentina. Uh, I also highly recommend this week's episode of The Rewatchables. Sean Fennessy, Brian Curtis, David Shoemaker, they talked about Jurassic Park. It's really, really good. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into the watch. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he was just acquired for a cash-fronted deal. It's Andy Greenwald. Oh, there are a lot of bids in the mix. Oh yeah, it's true. Uh, do, do you prefer? You have such a library of content too. That can I ask you a question? <laughs> do you prefer an all cash deal? I love working with cash. <laughs> you said that right before we started. Chris is an all cash business. Andy, it's Thursday. It's summer in Los Angeles. It's book club day. Andy is mixing up the medicine in the studio. I just, I just got a lot of vessels for water. It's hot uh, out there. Today we're doing uh, our book club episode mm-hmm. on Patrick Hoffman's Every Man a Menace. Woo! And Patrick himself is calling into the show, which we can't wait to talk to him about that. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that people who have not yet read the book, which is a mistake. You should sure. remedy that. I think they're going to be able to listen to this interview. I just have a feeling. This, this is going to be- very, very interesting. Patrick Hoffman wrote this novel, Every Man in Menace. It's his second novel after The White Van. I believe Every Man in Menace was published in 2016. He uh, was a San Francisco cab driver mm-hmm. who started to work as an investigator for the San Francisco district attorney and then went private, went out on his own mm-hmm. and has really seen some shit do you think he prefers all cash transactions? We're going to ask him. Uh, yeah, I bet that guy's got like some weird blockchain thing going where love you it. can like pay him in Thailand. Don't know what that means, but I love it. Um, speaking of paying dudes in Thailand, um, should we talk a little bit about the mergers that are happening that could define the next 50 years let's, of culture? Let's put on our Jonas Era glasses. This is the biz desk. Yeah. This is what we excel in. Both Chris and I attended the Wharton School of Business. Let me rephrase that. Both Chris and I have driven past the Wharton School of Business. I definitely rode my bike past the Wharton School of Business. I know where a building that says those words on it is. Yes. And uh, it's worth noting, though, because this is part of the gig. To talk about culture, to engage with culture in 2018 is to have at least a tertiary awareness of the giant, giant, giant media conglomerates that are constantly throwing themselves into each other, merging, breaking apart, whatever— because that trickles down and determines what we're watching and, and buying and consuming. So for a while now, the assumption has been, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, that Disney was going to basically buy Fox. Yes. That there was a deal agreed to in principle in which Rupert Murdoch was going to divest almost everything of his um, U.S. media holdings, basically. Right, and he was going to keep Fox News and Fox Sports, correct? Yes. And basically sell, and, and the Fox channel, the broadcast channel, because you can't, there are still, believe it or not, there, there are still, still antitrust rules. There are yes. still some laws. <laughs> and because Disney owns ABC, Disney cannot also own Fox. So under this plan, uh, old Roops would hold on to Fox, but it would be essentially a, a, a puppet without a 
hand inside sure. of it, for lack of a weird. That's how that, I feel a, every day. It's yeah. a weird metaphor. Um, <laughs> I'm in a weird place. I'm just drinking a lot of water. Um, we have so much water. I'm just, we're so thirsty on this podcast. Uh, anyway, uh, they would sell the studio. Yeah. And so we have talked about how that would affect the broadcast network. Plans have been, it's been weird because major companies have basically been in limbo for the last few months. We know for a fact, without any details, that behind the scenes, there are probably, there are two envelopes, right? There's the future of Marvel movies as currently constructed. And then there's the future of Marvel movies should Kevin Feige get access to the X-Men and Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. There's versions of, I mean, you go down the line of every major component of this deal, and there's probably one plan. There's plan A and plan B. Um, because the AT&T uh, HBO deal, Time Warner deal, just was approved. Yes. That changes the game, basically. Now it's going to be, it's merger season out there. Um, and Comcast, who own uh, NBC and Universal. Speaking and, of Philadelphia. And, yeah, Big moves by the Philly boys. Yeah. And uh, they also, I believe, own the Shinehart Wig Company. They have now made what is, again, I am a business expert. A $65 billion offer to uh, Rupert Murdoch. To buy the same assets. Yes. Uh, they also could not buy the Fox Broadcast Network because they, they, own they own NBC. Right. Um, and I think that one thing that's worth noting yeah. is that, uh, obviously, Joe, Joe Adalian had a piece in Vulture, I think it was yeah. early this week, about the rise of Netflix and we ain't never going to stop Netflix, you know, and just the- The, the puffy in 1997 yeah, of, of companies. Uh, and their specific way of making content and how they are flooding the market in a way in which it's, it's truly changing the paradigm of how I think people, mm-hmm. whether or not they have the goods yet is one thing, but the fact is, is that they're pumping so much stuff into the market that they are changing the way I think literally human beings interpret the culture that they receive because mm-hmm. it's not coming on certain days. It's not coming with advertisements. It's not coming week by week. It's got a variety it, of different run times and- It doesn't care when you watch it. It doesn't care when you watch it and it's not playing the same quadrant games that networks do in terms of what they need a show to accomplish mm-hmm. for it to be a viable property. Netflix can make things that are very specifically marketed to a very specific demographic and they can put it wide across 190 I, countries and there might be people in those 190 countries that share demographic qualities with people in Los Angeles and Iowa and Peru. And I, and I think you, what you, the way you just phrased it is a really essential way to think about these things because in the broadcaster's way of thinking about stuff, it's right there in the name. The, the intention is to be broad. Mm-hmm. The intention is to make a show that may star people who look a certain way or may be written by people who are of a certain age, but the goal always used to be let's see how big this can get. Right. Let's reach as many people as possible with this one thing. Narrowcasting does not work for them. Narrowcasting is the business model. Yes, yeah. It literally is the business model. So it does not matter to Netflix if the ceiling for a particular show is lower than the ceiling for American Idol in in 2003 or, or, I mean, not to to poke at a scab or Roseanne or in terriers. 2018. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. Right. And so I bring that up to say, as Netflix has grown its footprint, not only here, but across the world in a way that I don't think anybody really understood until the last 18 months or 24 mm-hmm. months or so, uh, these other major media companies have looked to band together in different ways to, to combat it, com- right? have yeah. some sort of answer. And one of the reasons why this Fox merger is so valuable both to Disney or to Comcast is that Disney is planning its own over-the-top app to go and 
provide Star Wars and their incredible catalog of their library of stuff. Let me just say, one of the most brutal aspects of parenthood is to realize that essentially every Disney movie that your kid wants to watch, you have to pay for. Yes. It's smart. Right. Because you got to. Right. And, and it's so, so Disney and, wants and to start its own over service. the top and then Comcast has Hulu. Uh, and Hulu would be... It, for Hulu to bring on all these Fox assets would make Hulu— Well, Hulu is partially owned by Fox now. But yes. the question is, who's going to take it over completely? Exactly. So you're talking about um, a yet-to-be-launched Disney app, Hulu, all trying to compete with Netflix. And then the sort of the Fox on the other side of the river here is Apple— which is sort of which waiting. is not a fox, but you mean in the animal metaphor? No, no, no. I mean in the in the you know you put the, the chicken, the farmer and the chicken in the boat, and they're oh, trying to figure out. How, I can't figure it out either. It was yeah. just a the the predator, mm-hmm. but not like a like a real predator, like Jacob Tremblay <laughs> assembling. I just want to put it in terms that our business savvy audience can understand. Yeah, on the other side of the river, Apple is waiting with like more money than it knows what to do with. But they literally don't know what to do with it. They, as we've said before, they they. They can play this game, and they can play on Netflix's stage. They can they can operate on that level, but TBD whether they know what to do with it. Yeah. And despite the fact that they did hire these very very savvy, very connected, smart executives from Sony to run their television business, there's still a big question mark. You know, there is much more value in buying something that buying people who already know how to do it, who already have the relationships in place in the framework that they're existing in. And that's, for example, one of the I, I immediately went to the the headline item of this fire sale, which was, oh, who's going to get the the X-Men property, sure. right? They're doing, I mean, Disney wants to buy the Fox partly for that. Sure, that's cool. They also want to buy it for John Landgraf at FX. They want to buy it for the people who have been making waves successfully in the current market. Yeah, and I think that that's something that's Slight, like lightly outlined in, in Adalian's piece is the uh, demand now for talent to fill all these positions. And yeah. you're seeing, if you read Deadline, there will be somebody and they'll go from Netflix to Apple or somebody will leave mm-hmm. you know, this network to go to that network because there's these new positions being created. There's more demand for people to develop, approve, produce, you know, all, all this content that they're getting. Now, um, I think that probably the most natural way for Andy and I to react to all this is, is this good for the audience? Is this good for the viewer? The truth of the matter is, is that uh, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I really don't. And I don't, I think one of the reasons why I don't know is that I wouldn't have told you four years ago that uh, the conversation and the feeling of experiencing whatever you want to call television now would be so drastically different mm-hmm. now than it was when you and I first started the podcast. Mm-hmm. When you and I first started the podcast, TV, at least the TV that we talked about, largely was a build up to and come down from Sunday nights where mm-hmm. all these prestige shows were. There was still a real you know, attention to, you'd come home on Tuesday and say, what's on tonight? I know this sounds corny and I know a lot of people were DVRing. Now I work at a place where I would say, 10% of the people who work at the ringer have cable. Uh-huh. Um, and that is the reality that these companies are dealing with. They are dealing with a reality in which l- more and more people are saying, I'd like to use, I'd, I'll go to the movies, but only via movie pass. They are looking for ways around the old conventional ways of bring, of, of processing and, and, and enjoying culture that we, that we grew up with. This is simply a sea change that we're living through. And these companies are willing to pay outrageous numbers Mm-hmm. to be a part of that and to get ahead of that and to be a player in that world. Yeah, and I don't, I agree, I don't, despite my deep business background, I don't know. I mean, look, you're coming at this yeah. largely 
Yeah. From an X-Men perspective. Well, an X-Men and a Wall Street perspective, you know, <laughs> like I, 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 I am, I am nothing if not yeah. a, a day trader and hedge funds are my forte. And the reason I don't watch Billions is because it's just too close to my life. You know, I just like, I, I want to escape yeah. at the end of the day. But I, I honestly don't know what to make of any of this. I think generally competition is a good thing. I think there should be many, it should, there should be a marketplace where many people can come with their ideas and with their, with their shows and with their voices and with their perspectives. That said, you know, let, let, just to take a small example, there was a, a, a good run for a couple of years there where the shows that I was championing the loudest at Grandland, many of them were on Sundance. Mm-hmm. Sundance Channel is a tiny, tiny boutique network that is part of the AMC suite of networks. And mm-hmm. this is at a time when they had Rectify and they had um, uh, Deutschland 83 and they had Top of the Lake. And I was like, this, somehow they're making this work. Somehow they're playing the margins and they're making these shows that, yes, do not, these are not broadcasts. These are not for everyone. But I love that there's a place for these shows to, to succeed and thrive. I don't know. I mean, it's not just that they haven't had as many great shows in the last few years. There have been a couple for sure. But I think we've commented before that it doesn't seem like AMC Networks as currently constructed has the range, you know, I, and I don't even say this with any knowledge of their inside situation. I'm just using them as an example of a corporation or a conglomerate that simply cannot step to Netflix on Netflix's turf. Yes. Especially when Netflix sets the terms of debate. So if a company like that gets folded into a place like Netflix that could make, they could reboot, rectify, like nothing, I'm not saying it should be, but they could and they wouldn't care. I don't know what we're trading off to get that. I don't know What's I don't know where to locate value in that transaction other than to say, again, from the consumer perspective, I want a place that can support smaller shows. Yes, and I think that one thing that it's worth noting and we'll have to keep an eye on with the Time Warner AT&T merger specifically is when you start bringing telecom giants or um, tech giants into these other companies, what you're going to start getting is different ideas about the way that content should be made and delivered naturally. And now there was a sort of, uh, I think largely quoted, not out of context, but probably taken a little too seriously where it was a quote from, I don't know if it was Randall Stevenson from AT&T or if it was just somebody who worked at AT&T and talking about um, Richard Plepler is going to need to get used to the idea of people at AT&T, Richard Plepler who runs HBO uh, with Casey Ploys as like the sort of person who's the president. Yeah. Um, Plepler is the president of the business. Yeah. And the idea that basically like there might need like, 20 minutes of Game of Thrones is what works for phones. Well, right. There's, or something, it, 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 I'm paraphrasing the quote, but that, it was essentially like, reconsider the idea of how long Game of Thrones episodes should be for mobile. They're not going to change Game of Thrones because there's one season left, but that that comment is really interesting and it will be worth revisiting. Not just for, because there are two things at play here if this merger does happen. Oh, it is happening. Um, there is the creative uh, collision between uh, two disparate companies, uh, and there is also the technological collision between you know. And so, you, what you're speaking to is what? How can you maximize value for people who are watching things not on TV? Yeah, blah blah blah. But there's also a cultural difference. HBO is a quintessential New York company. That yes, they have an office in Santa Monica, but the whole gestalt of HBO is that like we're in New York, we're going to have these parties at the. That's what people Museum. in high rises are watching. Yes, this is who we cater to. We are the crown jewel of whoever holds us, and. Decisions that trickle down from that self-image, it, it influences what shows they greenlight, what shows they renew, but also the attitude and the leverage that they give creators. So they can tell Larry David, you make your show whenever you feel like it. They can tell Benioff and Weiss, when you're ready to have this final season ready for us, which this a final season of the show that is the most popular show on planet Earth, you tell us. Yes. Now, they weren't 
it wasn't that free. Yeah, I mean, but they what wanted, if somebody is like, but, hey, how about it never stops? How about you guys never oh, stop a season? Why do oh, we have to have quote unquote episodes? Yes, Why or, don't you just keep delivering p- packages of content to us every week? Or a company that is in Texas saying like, we renew people for our digital service plans or DirecTV every year on the year. You need to deliver the content for the people every mm-hmm. year on the year. I mean, these are the things that are going to be worked out by people who, I know it's surprising, but people who might have more experience in business than we do. And yeah, and you know what, honestly, the thing that I'm most curious about, and it just, I know that there's going to be a lot of far-reaching ramifications of all of these mergers and sell-offs and everything, is uh, on a weirdly, like, just practical level, mm-hmm. I think the allure of cutting the cord originally was that the cable companies had started to present a package, uh, a product that wasn't worth the price they were asking for, essentially. That you were paying upwards of $250 a month if you were going through a company to get your phone, your internet, and your cable. And sometimes more. And you got all these channels and you didn't get to choose the channels and you didn't get to say, well, I don't want to pay, like, what if I don't want to pay for Bravo? Or what if I don't want to pay for ESPN2? Or what if I don't want to pay for this or that? And then you had all these kind of, you were sort of forced that. But now we're getting into a world where theoretically, if you've got an Amazon situation, a Netflix situation, an Apple situation, mm-hmm. a Disney to come situation, and a uh, AT&T Time Warner situation, and whatever this Disney Comcast or whatever this Fox Comcast or Fox Disney situation winds up being, six, seven, to say nothing of the littler streaming services like Filmstruck and Shutter and everything else that are sort mm-hmm. of interesting curios, what are you going to do when you're paying even more for just these yeah. streaming services than you were in the originally to get cable channels you didn't want? And I am curious about whether we're eventually heading back to a world in which you can get Amazon or you can get Apple. Yeah. Well, also, you remember, we're also doing the same thing. The same transformation we're talking about has happened to music. So you're also paying your $9.99 a month or whatever it is to Spotify. Meanwhile, Amazon and Apple are saying, well, we have access to the same albums, but most people forget at this point that you can get that through them, or at least through Amazon. I feel like people haven't really picked up on their music service. It's it's a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. And um, No, I'm I'm really curious to see how it plays out. And the challenge for... uh, the consumer, I mean, who, you know, for everything we've said, I, I can imagine someone listening to the end of this conversation between us and being like, well, it's, I get more shows. I don't really see the problem yet. Or I get Wolverine and the Avengers. I don't see what the problem is. Um, there might not be one for a while. Sure. But there definitely is, it, there's definitely a struggle in this town at the moment to combat the perception that everything that's being made in this post-golden age deluge of creativity, they're devoting all this time and energy for widgets for, um, you know, for ammunition in these corporate wars. Yes. Um, because you, you, once you get a thing on the, on Apple TV, you've got to fill it with crap. You got to, you, you just yeah. got to fill it. Yeah. You got to fill these holes that they're creating. You know, you mentioned it in relation to executives being hired, but there, you know, I'm learning this now as I'm going through the, the process with my pilot. Like there are a limited, there's limited resources of great yeah. actors, of great directors, of great line producers, of great set designers, you know, and. I'm happy to fill any of those roles. You give me. Star and set designer. You give me a list of, like, honestly, what do you think below the line, of course, you know, I mean, come on. But like, what, what is, what f- position do you think you are best suited for? What, like, I think I'm like a really solid early Coen Brothers, Steve Buscemi type. So I'm going to come in. That's on camera. Yeah. Oh, you want me to be behind the camera? Well, first of all, you'd be <laughs> wasted back there. If we, but if we accept that, what gen, what other job on set do you think you could cover? 
Um, what, what is your temperament, your personality? I was watching this Star Wars documentary, the last, the Jedi and the filmmaker and the Jedi documentary. Right. I want to be the guy who measures the distance from someone's face to the lens. Really? Yeah. Now, is that because you It are, just seems like that's good, a one job I could handle. But I feel like there's secret <laughs> difficulty. Like, are you good really, really close to people? You know what I mean? Like, could you get That's a really good question. razor thin close to Daisy Ridley <laughs> and not creep her the fuck out? You know what I mean? Just be like, oh, there's there's Chris measuring my nose. I think again. I loosen her up by just being like, have you heard my British accent? <laughs> That's key. Okay, we're gonna wrap up because we gotta get Patrick Hoffman on the phone. Uh, we'll obviously be talking about this a lot for probably the rest of the existence who, of this who, podcast. Who do you want to buy Fox? Me personally? Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. I I don't I don't have like a dog in this. Fight. I want the Roy family. You just from want Succession. X-Men on. You just want X-Men. I don't care about that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. All right. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with the hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. Even though their name is Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book in advance, perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. And it's so easy to use. Book hotels in 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. There's even an HT Perks program where the more you book, the better the deals get. I've been using Hotel Tonight for about 18 months now. I used it to go to Tahoe last summer. I'm going to use it again to go to Tahoe. And it's just so easy because what you do is you look through these hotels in these different places and you can actually get inspired by the deals to go to the place. You don't necessarily need a destination before you start using Hotel Tonight. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets of every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will help you get closer to the action for a great value. I have SeatGeek on my phone, and it is by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. Uh, Andy and I use it for concerts, uh, trying to get these Phillies tickets like a month ago. I got got in to see them. Um, did you use SeatGeek to take to go to the Phillies game? I used game? SeatGeek to take my daughters to their first Phillies-Dodger game. I used SeatGeek. I saw, and I saw that your, your, your seeds are starting to align themselves with the Dodger blue. Let's not make it personal. Okay. I also used SeatGeek to see Paul Simon at the Bowl. It was a great night. Yeah. Uh, you can be anywhere with just a few taps. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And... To get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. That's promo code WATCH for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek. Right seat, right now, right from your phone. All right, Andy, we're back. Uh, We're going to get into this interview with Patrick Hoffman, the author of Every Man to Menace, the most recent selection for the Double Down Book Club. I would probably venture to say that this is the darkest book we have picked. And that's saying something because we got, we talked about Annihilation. We've talked about dudes just 
packing their own face with cocaine after getting hit with shovels. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of different dark stuff on on this pod, but every man a menace. I think that you, you know, and you've talked. We've talked off air about this. It's not just that it's dark. It's also that the characters live in a world of fear. Yeah, it is a difficult book at first, and then an incredibly difficult book to put down. You were on this train first. It took me a second, and I, I you know, I, I said this in the interview with Patrick. I've said it before in the podcast. Stick with it. If, if, if it's confusing after the first few pages, that's intentional. This is a book that disorients you and immediately puts you into a, almost like a secret society that we are privileged not to really know too much about. Yeah, right. The world of international drug trafficking, trafficking and how it affects nearly every facet of modern capitalism and American cities and American life. Um, it is a thrilling, disturbing read, and it's written with a clarity of focus and a... Um, ambitious level of style that I just found really, really compelling. Yeah, there's this quote from uh, this Don DeLillo book that I always go back to um, called Libra, which is about Lee Harvey Oswald. And at one point, one of the characters says to someone, there is a world inside the world. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea, basically, that just outside of your personal experience, just beyond touching distance, there is not like another reality, but just like this shadow world with shadow economies and shadow... Uh, sets of manners and sets of ethics and sets of rules and uh, sets of consequences. And I've always, always been fascinated by that. I think it's probably why I am so drawn to crime fiction. I think I felt it more acutely when I lived in New York because New York is the the place where you can spend all day walking and down any street is another universe. Yeah. And outside of any subway stop is another galaxy. And you kind of feel more closely uh, situated to that the, because you're just constantly sitting next to strangers on subway cars or bumping into people on street corners or looking down alleys and seeing shit you don't understand. New York City still feels like a game of shoots and ladders and living here, uh, much less so. But reading a book like this is all shoots. Right. So a little bit about this book. Obviously, we can't go... If you haven't listened, if you haven't read the book, just I highly recommend you just uh, bookmark this podcast and come back to it afterwards. Although we do not spoil it. Yeah, we don't spoil it. And we're not going to spoil it now, but just in case you're curious about it, Every Man of Menace is essentially um, a panoramic look at the global ecstasy trade. Um, Patrick, in his interview that we just did with him, talked about how the three sort of major components of of drug trafficking is production, movement, and sales. And this book takes a look at each element of that through a series of interconnected characters in San Francisco, Miami, and uh, Asia. And it is um, a, a book that's really infused with a, a dread, but it is also a fascinating read to see the lattice work of how a pill gets made one place, is shipped through this place, and is sold in this place, and all the different lives that touches and destroys, but also props up. And um, the characters in this book uh, are indelible in a way that I don't know necessarily. It's like, you're not going to be like, that's like Jackie Brown, or that's like John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. They're not cool in that way, but they will not leave you. Yeah, even though they may leave the earth in the course of the book. Sure. Let, let's get into our interview with Patrick Hoffman, the author of Every Man a Menace. Andy and I are so happy. This is always a thrill when we get to actually talk to the people who write the books that are in the Double Down Book Club. And this is a real thrill for me because I've been pretty obsessed with Every Man a Menace for six months now, I think. Um, Patrick Hoffman is online. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Man, thank you guys for having me. I'm very excited. So, Patrick, I wanted to ask you, you you have one of these 
backgrounds that I think probably is the first question of any interview that you have because you you worked as an investigator before. But I know you were driving. I rather than find out how you made the leap from investigator to uh, to writer, I was kind of curious. I know that you were you were also working as a cab driver in San Francisco for a while before you were investigator. So how did you make that leap from from cabs to investigations? Yeah. Um, well, I was driving a cab for about four years in San Francisco. You know, I was a little burnt out with it and didn't know where my life was going. I was about 27 years old, and a friend of mine was investigating uh, death penalty cases. I said, man, that sounds cool. How do you get into that? And she uh, pointed me toward a private investigator, and he suggested I work for the public defender, or intern at the public defender's office in San Francisco. So I did that for six months while I was still driving. And then, uh, and then I got hired by a private investigator named Tim O'Brien and worked for him for four years and then went back to the public defenders and worked for them for five years. So I feel like people who are drawn to that line of work, there's probably two types of people. There's a person who becomes an investigator and then confirms all of their worst fears and horrors about the world. <laughs> and then there's the kind of person who, who becomes an investigator and is shocked by the types of depravity or just human behavior that he or she witnesses. Which camp would you put yourself in? I guess I was, I guess I was shocked. I was kind of naive a little bit before I got into it. And, uh, it was a lot of violence, especially at the public defender's office. I was working on uh, in the homicide unit and just working on a lot of murder cases. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of shocking. Was it, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, you know, I'm not even, I don't mean, I'm not even facetious when I ask. Like, did your life of whatever books you were reading or movies you were, you were watching, did you find that it prepared you for that? Or did you find that it was actually nothing like the uh, like maybe crime fiction or crime films that you had ever seen before? Well, you know, the funny thing is that uh, the taxi driving actually was great preparation for it. Because it was like I worked, you know, I drove a cab in the night and you're out in San Francisco uh interacting with all types of people, um, a lot of criminal stuff, and you're just talking to everybody. So it's like a lesson in just learning to talk to people. Now that we have Ubers, at least in New York, they don't talk anymore. But back then it used to be like I would talk with every passenger. So it was a way of learning how to talk to people. I definitely encourage um, you to have an UberX experience in Los Angeles if you miss talking to people. <laughs> someone was saying that, that they, you get a lot of talking in L.A. Yeah, and New York is just silent. Pretty chatty. <laughs> I hear there's a lot of... Uh, pitching of uh yeah do you, you want to like, hear I'm my band do you want to hear my <laughs> yeah. my my trance remix of this uh yeah. dua lipa song yeah one of the things about yeah. the, the book that i think is so brilliant is the way that you very uh, methodically and and gracefully reveal the connections between your characters reveal the connections between um small acts of violence and larger acts of capitalism that happen in the world that you're depicting can you talk a little bit about the discovery in your own life of how of this sort of of the connections between things, the threads that ran through, you know, the, the one case that you maybe uncovered working for the DA or the person you spoke to driving a cab and how they got larger. Because the book, and I, you know, I, I'm hoping people will either have read it or will read it, is just really incredible the way it goes from the micro to the macro and back again. Yeah. You know, so basically the way the book happened, and I think it happened in the construction of the form of the book, kind of made that those connections happen. But I was uh, working on a different novel at the time, uh, just starting well, like pretty well into a different novel, and a friend of mine, a private investigator, called and said, uh, did you know that ecstasy comes from a uh, tree in Cambodia? They get saffron oil as a precursor, and one of the places they would do that was in uh, trees, trees in the jungle in Cambodia. He's like, you should write a book about that. <laughs> and then at the same time, 
Um, I was reading that book, Mick Mafia, you know that one? Sure, yeah. Came across a sentence in there that said, that was just talking about that uh, drug trafficking is about, you know, there's three parts to drug trafficking, the making, the moving, and the selling. And uh, so when my friend, the private investigator, Andrew Koltuniak, he's a great investigator, shout out to Andrew, uh, said that uh, that line from from the McMafia book came to mind. I was like, yeah, that would make a good story. You'd have the making in Cambodia with the saffron oil, moving, uh, some Israelis moving this stuff, and then selling it in the Bay Area. Um, and then... I kind of just put that to the side, and I was working on the book I was working on took place in a prison uh, in California, and it was just like about these Aryan Brotherhood guys. And uh, so I went down to meet with my editor. I just sold the white van, and I had another book, a two book deal. So I went down and talked to him in New York, and he's like, What are you working on? I said, I'm working on a thing about the Aryan Brotherhood, it all takes place in prison. Uh, and he was like, you got any other ideas? You <laughs> reminds me a little bit of the pilot in Airplane. Yeah. He's just like, uh, you ever, you ever write a book about the Aryan Brotherhood, Timmy? I mean, it's, uh... <laughs> yeah. So then I was like, well, there's this other thing about ecstasy. He's like, you should do that one. Yeah. I think, I think you should do that one. I'll give you a little bit more money to go to Cambodia to research it. I wish it was more like the, it was like the guy from Barton Fink is like, do they have to be brothers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about these guys? These, yeah. these Aryan brothers? Do they, like, what if they were just cousins? So you have, <laughs> you have this this chain yeah. of distribution and 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 creation that that I think you're totally right. I get it. Like when someone pitches that to you, you can imagine how that makes a story. But you took it an extra step. And one of the really uh, tremendous things about Every Man a Menace is the way it confounds our expectations in the delivery of the story. And I experienced this myself. And I talked about it on the podcast. And I tell other people who pick up the book. Um, if you are disoriented by the first section in San Francisco, that is intentional. Uh, the story sort of unfolds outward like like petals in a flower or something. It, yeah. it, it, it's remarkable the way you do it. Um, but there is that deep, deep, unsettling disorientation in the beginning that I now appreciate even more. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you constructed the novel and how you settled on this particular um, construction? Yeah, you know, so that ended up being just fixing... The construction came out of fixing problems that that existed. So when I first wrote it, it what I, I I said I'm going to do these three parts. So I started with the San Francisco part, and then I got into the Miami section. And then actually, in the original first draft, the third section all took place in Cambodia, and uh, and I really loved that part. And then I had people read it. Like five of my friends read it, and my agent and. Uh, all five of them, without talking to each other, all said, uh, "We like, you know, we like it, but we don't like the Cambodia part. It's just not connected to the other ones." Um, so that Cambodia part got boiled. You know that part in in Thailand where uh, Moisey gets called in by the boss guy Nana, and he's telling him uh, that short. He he tells a short story about being in the jungle, yeah. and uh, yeah. So that was that that whole section got boiled down to those two pages. Wow. Um, and then I was like, I got to, you know, then the people were like, you got to tie it together more. So originally I didn't have the part in Miami where, uh, Jackie with Jackie, where it follows her after the ripoff. It just ended when, when she's let go. And then, so, yeah, so the book really wasn't, you know, now I see it really wasn't working in the first draft and then having Jackie, you can take her back to San Francisco and tie it all back together. 
Um, with you're talking about specific characters, and one of the things I found fascinating about the book, and I don't know if this is intentional at all, but you know, Andy and I have been talking about crime novels here for a couple of years now, and I think we always recognize when someone's playing with our preconceived notions or playing with archetypes. You know, uh, sort of upsetting the apple cart of a traditional cop novel or a traditional bank heist novel or whatever. But what you're doing here is I, I felt like Raymond was a, a character that at first glance I knew. And it almost felt like I was waiting for Raymond to say, I only need to do one last score or something. But as the Raymond section in the beginning goes on, you start to feel more and more like this is not somebody that you've seen before. And then as the book goes on, each character feels more and more unique and more and more unlike like to, to where you end up with Gloria. And I just, Gloria is this incredibly original creation to me. How did, did you base these on real people? Did you, are there, are there one for one likes in the world of some of these people? Or are they uh, amalgamations of, of, of characters that you would come across in your work in the past? There, um, thank you for that. Uh, I think I'd take a little bit here and there, you know, they're not straight up people, but like for the Shadrach character, I did know a guy named Shadrach had a case I worked on where he was the defendant. We were representing him and, uh, he was crazy. Kind of like Shadrach was, he has one of the best tattoos I've ever seen, by the way. What was it? Um, it was, uh, or one of the darkest tattoos. It was on his eyelids, uh, game over. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Terrific. So he's super yeah. into Bill Paxton and aliens or is he? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, that, so like him, so basically just taking his name a little bit and a little bit of his, uh, un, you know, his uniqueness, I'll, uh, I'll say his uniqueness. Um, and then with Gloria, I met a woman once that was kind of mixed up in uh Filipino crime world in San Francisco. But just not not like Gloria was, but like more fringe character. But I kind of based Gloria a little bit just physically on that woman and some of the stuff she said. Um, but most of it's kind of is made up mainly. The Raymond thing, interestingly, comes. Uh, Raymond was the character that was in the prison on the book I was working on. So in the first book that I didn't write or that I was working on, uh, Raymond was in prison, and like Arthur, his boss, was in prison with him there. So I just kind of took him out of prison for the first section. One thing that, that Chris and I like to talk about um, as we go through authors that we love and books that we love that could, you know, more or less be grouped under this genre of crime novels is the level of how much emotion is in them versus how much clinical detail. And, you know, that's a sliding scale depending on the author and certainly depending on the preference of the reader. And one thing that I really admired about your book is that it is methodical. You know, I, I can tell that you were probably a pretty good investigator or that you didn't take bad shortcuts as a taxi driver because the level of detail is really commendable and remarkable. But there is an emotion that pulses through this book that was unexpected to me, um, and that was fear. The characters, when, you know, push, characters who are living high or living low, but in these different opportunities given to them along the way, when they are afraid of things, it is all-consuming and total, and it's not a typical emotion that you would expect from people in a hardened prisoners or people who are in a life of crime. Um, can you talk about where that came from? Yeah, I sometimes sometimes I worry that it's my only like my only trick, you know, <laughs> my one uh, skill is that like kind of dread feeling. Um, you know what it is? I think it, the what what it is is that the criminal defense work. And representing guys that were charged with murder and women occasionally uh, and gang members and, you know, 
ended up liking a lot of them and and just you know that realizing that they're real humans so then the idea with the book i think is to kind of humanize those guys uh these guys are like gangsters and drug drug traffickers I try to think like just to get into it in more a human way and try to understand what they would be feeling and stuff i think they probably are feeling a lot of fear i was curious about um the way in which you know there there's a at the end of White Van, we start to see a character. We, we get a quick glimpse of a character that shows up in Every Man a Menace. In your mind, do you, and I don't know what the, if, uh, what the next book you're working on, um, but I want to talk a little bit about whether or not you see you, the, your works of fiction to be interconnected and that you're essentially uh, going to continue to use characters as background players in one book or one section of a book and then main characters in another because it was one of the most thrilling parts about this book is to see, you know, Moisey, you know, kind of be in seem like a, just a sort of bit player in one section of the book and then get his own sort of deep dive in a next. Can you talk a little bit about how you view the fictional world you've created? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I love, I do love the idea of that. And there's other parts too, like, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a section when uh, Raymond and Shadrach are driving and it's really small, but they are on the freeway and they see a white van. Oh, God. And then, so the idea was they were seeing the white van and that from the white van as it was driving back oh, to San Francisco. I didn't notice that. That's great. Yeah. It's really hard to catch that one. But, uh, and then Raymond mentions that he, like his last, uh, woman that he was with was a girl named Emily from the tenderloin. Oh, wow. Um, and then, so I love that. I love, you know, I, I really love Alan first and he does that a lot. And yeah. Uh, oh yeah. yeah so we, I love we're the way that well. he does that with the universe. Um, one problem that I ran into is uh, it creates some problems uh, for uh, adapting it to movies. It makes it harder to different people are to sell them individually, optioning it and stuff. It kind of created a problem. I actually had to change some of the stuff to make it less connected. Oh, that's interesting. Which it, is it, a shame and embarrassing to admit. It, but. but it's also the fact that um, you run into it like a believability problem because while Ellen First has many characters that recur, there seems to be an, there's an inexhaustible supply of dapper international figures who <laughs> just, who can sometimes right. be spies but yeah, sleep yeah. with people. And yeah, it, it, every book has its own. Um, yeah. I, just it, I do. I actually, I do want to ask you about the the potential for this book and your other books to live on in other mediums. But I, I had to ask. You mentioned Jackie before, and again, we we're trying not to spoil the book too heavily for people who are maybe listening to the interview but haven't yet finished the book. Um, she plays such an interesting role in the narrative, and the title sort of comes into focus at the very end when what has been a pretty um, uh, testosterone filled adventure in a lot of ways becomes almost matriarchal in a way, and um, women are given the last word. It, in what you've said so far, it suggests that, you know, that there have been, you, you were basically workshopping different versions of what became this book. Can you talk about the, the discovery of that connection between Gloria and Jackie at the end and the final thought that you leave the readers with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're exactly right. Uh, but, and that's what I was going on, was just trying to, to have the women... In the end, I realized that the the women should. Well, the women are a menace too. You know, it's not that they're like the good ones in the end. Um, they are also a menace, but they kind of come out on top. And I thought that was just another. I, I do like you pointed earlier. I do like to kind of reverse uh, the expectations or whatever the hierarchies that we're used to in crime fiction. And I thought it would be nice to have the uh, 
women not only just come out on top, but also be potentially like Gloria, especially, but also Jackie is a kind of a sociopath herself, but both of them uh, potentially be more evil than even the other evil men that we have. So right, it's not that they're, they're, they're all evil. That's maybe my burnout from the public defender's office. It's not that they're softer than the men. It's actually that they're even better at surviving. You know, and they're more, yeah, they're more, they're, they're more they're competent more dangerous, possibly. And, and thorough in a way. Yeah. yeah, and it also feels like those characters. I mean, Raymond and Jackie especially feel like um, people who have prob- are probably a product of generations of deterioration of any kind of institutional support, any kind of uh, light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to how they're going to live and 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 any kind of economic upward mobility, and that they've kind of drifted into these margins where it's in and out of prison and in and off, on and off of drugs and in and out of schemes. And they don't have any... It, the One of the things I liked about it was that their criminality is not... Um, it's not abnormal in this world. Like, this is just... It's kind of like what everybody does. And I, I thought you did it in a way that wasn't over-romanticizing, but also was very straightforward about the fact that this is the reality for a lot of people. It's not like they have a family that's turned them back their back on them. Maybe the family has kind of disintegrated over the years or whatever. And I, I thought that was a fascinating component of, of both books, but especially Every Man of Menace. Yeah, yeah. They're just like working class uh, criminals trying to, trying to get by. Do you um, can you talk at all about um, future plans, both potentially for this book uh, as a you know on, on television or in the movies, but also just now two books in, having done this research and 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 lived in this world, what how you see your project going forward? Just as as a writer, the types of stories you want to tell and and the world that you are you have access to. Yeah, I think uh, for Every Man a Menace, um, company Studio Eight is developing it. I I shouldn't talk about what they're doing exactly because they haven't announced it, but they've got really good plans and I'm very excited and I totally agree with their, uh, what they're thinking about. Um, they have that movie white boy Rick coming out right now. Did you guys see the trailer to that one? Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that looks awesome. So I'm, I think they're doing a good job on that. Um, so I'm very excited about what they're, they're doing it as a movie. Um, and then for myself, I, I've, I'm working on a novel, and uh, the novel actually came from a TV pilot that I wrote, and then my agent was like, you got to write this as a novel. Will you listen to me? <laughs> <laughs> Again, like the last time I was halfway into another one, I was like, all right, I'll listen to you. I'll do it as a novel. Is it about a prison gang in Cambodia? To... <laughs> yeah, seriously, you should just combine the two to just <laughs> stick it to them. Yeah, there it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love film, and I... Uh, love TV and stuff too. So I'd be very happy to get into that also. Um, right. it gets kind of lonely writing novels, you know? Well, we're going to have to have you back on at some point to talk about favorite shows and favorite movies. We got to wrap up there, but, um, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to call in and it's just an incredible novel. Can't I, I, and I think everybody I know who've, who's checked it out is just blown away by it. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. All right. You too. All right. We'll be back on Monday. Uh, Thanks for listening to The Watch, and we'll probably hit Succession and Westworld on Monday, Uh, so take care.